Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. I'm Lucia Rahili. I think sometimes the specter of, well, we have to keep comp quiet. I would go the exact opposite right now. I would want to keep comp loud and proud and saying, let's go talk about comp. Let's talk about how we're acknowledging the inflation pressures. Talk about understanding the market. As a commitment to you, the employee, I'm not detecting a ton of that transparency. That was Bill. He joins Brian and me to talk about how to manage performance when inflation is running hot and workers are worn out. Guys, welcome to the show. Great to see you. It's great to be here. Great to see you. Today we are going to traverse broader than usual ground and talk about a few of the talent trends that have surfaced in the media headlines in recent months. Let's start with quiet quitting. There has certainly been an inordinate amount of regular same old quitting going on as we have covered heavily in our great attrition research. Bill, do you want to give us the quick and dirty on the persistence of regular quitting? Yeah, sure. I mean, people continue to quit. And in our most recent data, the number of people who are saying they would leave without a job in hand, still very high. Sectors that previously we saw that were lower, like healthcare or education, are starting to creep up. Early on, we saw the massive hit in hospitality and leisure. You could probably trace some of that to what was in versus and available to us and what wasn't during the pandemic. We are seeing an interesting phenomenon of people being hired and not showing up. And I'm not sure what label that is exactly, but like you think you're hired or they think you're coming and you don't. This quiet quitting thing, which is an interesting label, you know, the, the this at its core, the simple version is people are doing a bare minimum. They're checking out. They're quitting emotionally. They're quitting mentally, but they're just showing up. This labeling, I think is relatively unique and I think speaks to uh, even in an environment when all these people have quit and are choosing, there remains an undercurrent of people who have emotionally and I think in some cases cognitively disengaged, but they're still there, right? Which is, you could argue, maybe worse. So for folks of a certain Gen X sensibility, the phrase quiet quitting might feel, as you described, kind of slackerish, right? But actually, some are calling it in the media just a kind of healthy expression of the need for boundaries that have collapsed during the pandemic. What's your take on that, Brian? I think the difference between having boundaries and setting boundaries can be in a healthy work environment where you're engaged, where you've got the the time and the space to spend the time that you need out of work, spend the time on the things that energize you. I think the difference between setting boundaries, which can be quite healthy, and quiet quitting is quiet quitting makes it seem like you actually don't care if you get fired. You are just going to sit in the seat for as long as it takes for somebody to figure out that you're not adding value, and then for as long as it takes for HR to process you out. And I think there's a part of the quiet quitting trend, if it really leans on quitting, that isn't saying, hey, I'm looking for boundaries, I'm not engaged in work, it's transactional. It's saying, you know what, I bet because my boss doesn't check in on me, I bet because HR takes six months to do a write-up and then the other things, I bet I can stay in this gig for two years and not do much. And I'm confident enough in the job market that when I do get fired, it's not like a, a black mark or I can voluntarily leave ahead of time. So I think there is a small subset of people that really are now trying to game the system because of a strong labor market on the other end. And that, to me, is a very different phenomenon than people that are engaged but 
need to respect the boundaries of work. And what do you think the right way is for managers to address issues like healthy boundary setting among their staff, especially at a time when this talent shortage might mean that some employees are tired of having to overcompensate for staff who are, you know, have left and so forth. We are seeing that close to 40% of the overall working population self-reports being burned out. Mm -hmm. So we definitely have a big percentage of the population that is saying, uh, this is a bit much and I need to do something uh, different to make it to make it work. So what managers can do is start by having the conversation. Literally start with, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. And what is it that excites you? How does what we're doing link into your own sense of purpose of what we're trying to do together and really try to engage the team? And the role of the manager is key in that aligning with purpose and at some level inspiring in the helping in the practical day-to-day. Hey, looks like you got a bit much going on. How can I help? And, you know, then following up with ways to tactically help. If the managers aren't there to help inspire, if the managers aren't there to help lead, if the managers aren't there to help follow up, it is a logical extension that somebody can be like, is anybody going to notice if I don't do this for a week or two weeks or wow? Oh, it was three months till somebody had the conversation. At that point, you know, at some level, that's a quiet quit, but another level, that's just a failure of management. I think the nature of the work relationship, which is a relationship like any other, there's a give and there's a get, even if there's a power distance. But the minute that the employee sees that where they perceive that the boss no longer cares about them as a person or doesn't actually care about what they're working on, it's just be their maintenance status quo, well, then why should I care? Right? I mean, I do think there is something here around when, if you're going to trigger apathy trigger indifference, almost trigger a, I dare you to catch me. It's likely because they've been massively underled. Because if they weren't being underled, you'd have caught them much earlier. The price you pay for authority is that you have real responsibilities to other people. And I think that the people that are quiet quitting, if you really try to dig into why they're doing it, I mean, some of it is they don't feel a connection to their job, to what they're doing, to the broader mission. And there's some way a sense of loss because everybody at some point in their career takes a job because they aspire for something to be bigger. They dream of something that is more inspiring, more captivating. And when they get to a point where that dream is gone, then they check out. And so I think there's part of it, which is how do you reignite that that spark, that sense of mission, that alignment. And some of it may end up, and for many individuals, may end up being not in the organization they're in now. Mm -hmm. But how do do we overall, because if we think of quiet quitting, if it is a broad phenomenon, and I'm not sure the data would show that it is, Mm -hmm. but if it is a broad phenomenon, that is a lot of people that have a real sense of loss for a pretty big part of their their work life. Mm -hmm. Gallup published some data showing that employee engagement is falling among younger workers, Gen Zs and millennials under 35. Have we learned anything from our life stage research about these younger demographics, what they might want in terms of purpose from their jobs and what might be lacking? I think one of the things that we've seen is that uh, younger generations are much more likely to be in what we would call the idealist segment. Mm-hmm. 
the segment that is truly looking for their calling. And so I think these people are leaning into that and saying, okay, what does it mean? And they're willing to take less comp. They're willing to take longer hours if it's something that they believe in and they believe that they're growing in. So you've got a set of folks that really are saying, hey, what is my calling? Where is it? How can I how can I grow? And you see that disproportionately in the under 24 uh, year old segment. Hey, you know, the purpose stuff that we did, um, what, like 18 months ago now on individual purpose, this idea about the difference between the idealist and the pragmatist uh, is really pretty telling. I mean, for the youngsters, when we asked them, you know, does your work have to have purpose? It was a resounding yes, like off the chart yes, right? I, it has to make a difference. But their ability to describe it was really low. It was like broad strokes. I need to make the world better. I want to improve access to healthcare. I want to improve the quality of schools, right? But when you say, well, what would that look like if you were there? They're like, well, that's your job. It's your job to help me figure that out. Mm-hmm. The minute, and but now what's unconstrained, their amount of time they can spend at work is unconstrained because many of them are or are not, are not in, a, in, a, in a long-term relationship or, or, or do or do not have a mouth to feed in the form of a child or, or someone to look after. The minute they had that, so it wasn't age as much as it was life event. The minute they had that, then magically they would reel back a bit on the grandiosity of the purpose, but get way more specific. Like, I want to do cold chain access for vaccines. Are your clients talking about quiet quitting as a phenomenon or some equivalent, maybe not using that term? I haven't had it said to me. I've not had a time in my professional career, which is now at McKinsey, which is a little over 22 years, where we haven't always thought about, we had people who were the social loafing is what it used to be called. Where you had people who figured out, particularly if they were in a recently high-performing team, they could skate. I mean, you have the same people always getting leaned on. That's been around forever. And there's a good amount of study on what does it do to team morale if it goes unchecked. So I think that's always been there. I just think that we've had a really, really perfect storm of the pandemic, bosses not checking in as much, feeling disengaged. I think the more you're away from your peers it's gotten to the point where it's pretty easy to not do your part. What about engagement? Are you seeing clients do anything interesting to try to increase engagement, particularly in a hybrid context? I'm convinced we're thirsty for interaction with others. I don't think we're meant to be isolated. So much in our life, it has a dimmer switch on it for a reason, which is it's very rarely off or on. For some reason, this conversation around how we work together has really been to like fully in or fully out. It's just never been that way. I think it's really come at the cost of social capital, ties that bind, a feeling of belonging. And I think now we're on the wrong end of that equation where we might have to overinvest, where if you actually bring people back, you're not bringing them back to work. You're bringing them back to remind themselves they like the people they work with. I think that's a society-wide problem, too. I mean, you look at the amount of loneliness research. You look at... you know, the the number of men that have a guy that could pick them up after a colonoscopy mm-hmm. is like incredibly low. So you've got this loneliness that is in some ways pervasive. Mm-hmm. And it's even loneliness. We're hearing it more on college campuses. We're oh seeing gosh, it yeah. in people, you know, as they're just joining the workforce mm-hmm. and you're seeing it as people that are more tenured. And for a lot of folks, they got their community as an adult through work. And I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a disruption of that. And we're seeing it across age cohorts and across levels. And so I think there is a desire for folks to have the connectivity. There is a desire to engage, but trying to figure out the way of doing it that feels authentic, 
that feels like it is really, you know, bringing people together. That is, I think, where people are trying a number of different ways of, of making it work. They've identified the problem, but I think we're pretty far from having a, a good solution. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about the social capital research, because that dovetails interestingly with this notion of quiet quitting. Do you want to say a little bit about how we've seen social capital decline over the course of the pandemic? I mean, what, what's interesting in the, in the social capital research is that across all demographic types, people say that they have less connection than they did before the pandemic. But those that had the biggest decreases or the fewest you know, responses tended to be women, tended to be people in diverse groups. So I think it really highlights you know, two things. One, for everybody, there's been a decline. But then we need to really think about, and why is it most extreme in these places where presumably we have entire departments within organizations that are focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, making this happen, yet you know, we're seeing the results from the social capital side that are quite, quite stunning. We've spoken enough on this podcast and outside this podcast for me to know that neither of you thinks that returning to the office full time is the answer to reaccumulating social capital. Have you seen clients taking any interesting approaches to try to facilitate rebuilding social capital in the hybrid context? One of the things I've seen, and this was actually an investment organization do that was distributed in all parts of the world, and they recognized that knowledge sharing across the different silos was important. But the way knowledge got shared wasn't through uploading a central system. It was conversations like, hey, what are you seeing in this? How does it work in this? What do you do? And so they created a new training program for these folks. The entire design of the program was for these people to talk to each other, to build deeper connectivity, to do something fun Mm -hmm. together. But recognizing that if it was just built as a social event – People wouldn't come. And so it was, we're going to do it under the guise of a formal program and bring these folks in. That, I think, is is an example, a practical example of how a company kind of recognized this declining uh, social connection and we're investing, uh, investing behind it. I, I think we almost have to reinvigorate the idea of just call someone. These people can help me do my job as opposed to I alone do my job. Everything has to come with a dose of community building. So you have people coming in not even so much to do work, as much as to reconnect. Do you expect the rise of quitting and the lowering of barriers to job switching or taking time off to affect year-end reviews? How should managers be thinking about year-end evaluation and feedback where shortages are growing and the threat of churn is looming I think it's going to make it harder for managers to give the tough feedback that is ultimately what is going to help the individual grow and the organization be in a better place. And so then we know from our research that if you don't deliver the tough feedback and you just let people skate or move by, that has a demotivating effect for those that are really the strong performers and the team performers. So I think taking some of the status 
out, oh, I was rated an X or I was rated a Y. Taking that out and just going to, uh, hey, you're doing great on these two things. You need these four things. I think that's what a healthy conversation looks like. Unfortunately, people haven't been trained to have the healthy conversation. Mm -hmm. And they're scared to have the conversation that may be more direct and may have an impact on comp. And so they soft pedal it. And you end up not having the hard conversation that everybody knows needs to be had. You won't have the difficult conversation. You'll wave your hand at it because the thought of losing another employee is devastating. You know, four years ago or so when we were really tracking all the people who were saying they were getting rid of it, and I think we've talked about it another time here, they've all come back with some form. You have to have some form of administrative evaluation or you can't differentiate. That's just sort of the essence of employment law. I would say we've not cracked the nut on the idea of stop focusing on the season, mm -hmm. on the event, and focus way more and throughout the year, just have good performance coaching conversations. How is it going? What can they do differently? So at the end of the year, for the vast majority of people, it's kind of a non-event. It's merely the summative nature of what you talked about throughout the year. I do worry that as we become more fractured and more fragmented, we're still actually in the world of the season where the leader's only been trained on filling out the damn form, not actually talking about meaningful performance coaching. Is it possible that giving feedback via technology and sort of more in real time and not in a face-to-face -face way could enable more frequent, more direct feedback because it's like sort of not as terrifying as sitting across from someone face-to-face -face and saying, you really fell short on this one, brother? I think on a small subset of technical skills and tasks where what you're getting feedback on is, hey, your lines of code had this many more bugs, you had these things. For those things, that can be automated and more frequent can be good. Like it's level setting where you are, kind of gives you a sense of where to go. But I think where we're seeing the growth of, you know, where we need individuals to be moving is yes, some technical, but a lot of social emotional. And you can't give social emotional feedback in an automated way. That has to be a direct conversation. And by the way, those conversations are the hard ones. Those are the ones where, you know, you, you have to recognize where the person is coming from. You have to be centered yourself. So not putting blame on the other. Those are more complex. And those are conversations that um, some people are born gifted in having those conversations, and some people aren't. Mm -hmm. But every manager needs to be able to have the conversation that helps put on the table some of the social and emotional issues that are going on in the workplace and be able to coach somebody through it. I participated in a demo of an AR, VR experience for having difficult conversations about, about 10 days ago. Really? It was fascinating. That is so interesting. Yeah. So here was the thing. It wasn't just an avatar. They used, So there was a person controlling the avatar, and they were speaking. There was a blending of the person's lips for the mouth movement into the avatar. And within about 30 seconds, the you were responding to the avatar as if it were real. One of the things that was really difficult is like even awareness of a microaggression, awareness of a difficult conversation gone wrong. Like you're bl you need practice. And so the person who's speaking will give you some scenarios. How you respond based against a rubric is what they give you next. And so it's clear it's practice. It doesn't feel as charged. You actually get, probably get closer to the clean read on what someone's instincts would be as opposed to feeling, oh, I need to be protective here or guard. Or it's, it was, I, I found it remarkable in its efficacy because early on I thought, well, this is hokey. 
And about 45 seconds into it, I'm like, oh, no, this is legit. For so many people, they're so guarded for anything other than your special. And it went swimmingly well that you actually have to practice it not being world-ending if you get told that there's an opportunity to be better. So we spoke on the McKinsey podcast several years ago now about year-end reviews and the importance both that they're conducted and that they're perceived to have been conducted fairly and transparently, but anything substantive to add since that time? So there's a trap or a potential trap that you actually reward the people in those connective roles and the ones that are independents that you see most, that you talk to most. Mm -hmm. And we know that the people who are coming back most to the office are, you know, tend to be more male, tend to be less diverse. And so if you're then inadvertently rewarding the people that are showing up, you're also inadvertently not recognizing, not rewarding some more diverse folks that for a variety of reasons may have needed to or have chosen to be more remote than in person. So I think it is something where for those interdependent roles, you have to be very, very thoughtful of, you have to be on top of the very specific actionable feedback that you have, and you have to wipe away some of the, hey, this person looks like a team player. Well, tell me what behaviors. You have to be really disciplined as you're going through the review process. I think the other thing that I've been thinking about with reviews is still many companies tie comp and even the regular comp increases to the review season. Mm -hmm. And right now, a lot of compensation has been changing. So you've got overall wage inflation. You've got a decline in wage premiums for markets like New York and San Francisco, places where you typically needed to pay more because cost of living is more. You're seeing an increasing nationalization because of wages because you can remote in for you know part or much of you know, many uh, knowledge worker jobs. So a lot of comp is in flux. If you add on, if you try to put all of that comp and flux in the context of a performance review and a performance rating, which some are tempted to do, it could have a potentially devastating effect on morale and be counter to what you're trying to do. So, I mean, what I've been encouraging my clients to do is think about them as two separate pieces. Think about the feedback that you want to give. And think about what it takes to really recognize the people at the very top and the very bottom. Then separately think about what does pay mean in an environment where there's wage inflation, changing in terms of um, nationalization of wages? Let's think of those two as separate. Mm -hmm. Because if we try to mix them together, then you can end up with somebody feeling like, hey, that feedback was unfair, and this comp thing is really unfair. And we know that if somebody perceives comp to be unfair, that it is a significant demotivator that sticks with people for much longer than if they just thought the feedback was unfair. Welcome to the Impetus for Quiet Quitting. <laughs> Phil, anything to add there? How do you expect inflation to you affect know, thinking about your end comp? I think sometimes the specter of, well, we have to keep comp quiet. I would go the exact opposite right now. I would want to keep comp loud and proud and saying, let's go talk about comp. Let's talk about how we're acknowledging the inflation pressures. Talk about understanding the market. As a commitment to you, the employee, I'm not detecting a ton of that transparency. I think that's a miss because it's if it if, if it involves the collective, I think we should be super transparent. If it's an individual performance kicker, talking about separating out the appraisal from the comp thing, break it into the parts of this was market driven, this is about the company, this is about you, mm -hmm. and really tease it out so people can see where they have a lever and where they don't. 
I mean, it used to be, um, you know, doing uh, comps, you know, on compensation would be an annual exercise at best, often driven in time for the comp committee for the board. But the dynamism in the markets that we've seen the last two years would suggest, if not quarterly, maybe even monthly for some, you know, really uh, in-demand roles. But if you could just say to people, what's changed about your comp? This is a market adjustment. This part is going up or down because of company performance. This part is uniquely you. Guys, great discussion. Thanks so much. Oh, it's always great to be here. I'm so happy we're in person. Great to be here. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lucia Rahilly with Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. Subscribe to McKinsey Talks Talent wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions for Brian and Bill, write to us at McKinseyTalksTalent at McKinsey.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we may answer your question on the show. Be well.